Anyway, thank you, Brooke, for reading that passage and Kayla for referencing it also in our worship. I love that passage. It's the Apostle Paul uh, in Athens uh, speaking uh, to the intellectual leaders. And uh, I love that passage. I've heard it several times, and I realized I look back through my records, and I've never, I've never preached on it before. And um, that's what I love about this uh, kind of journey through the lectionary, where, we're, where the, the, the scriptures are being given to us rather than saying, I want to go find my favorite things to preach on this year. Uh, we're looking at the lectionary and saying, what, what will work? And uh, so we have been preaching through Acts since uh, Easter, not all the way through Acts, but the, act, the texts have come to us from Acts, and I'll preach one more next Sunday. And then when I step away for uh, eight weeks, uh, Pastor Diana and Kelly Johnston uh, will be preaching from some Matthew texts out of the lectionary. Uh, and our theme is um, follow, following the rabbi, following the rabbi. So that's what's coming in uh, June and July. As I studied this passage and looked at it this week, it took me back to our BLESS evangelism initiative that we learned about during Lent. Um, BLESS was developed as a resource, um, developed as an approach to evangelism that acknowledges the differences and the changes in our our current culture. Uh, there's different ways of, uh, of speaking of truth these days. There's, there's differences in how our culture approaches uh, issues of faith and spirituality. Our current culture, some describe it as secular, but that's not really the best word because in some ways our current culture uh, has lots of marks of spirituality. They're just not necessarily Christian spirituality. Some people refer to this as a post-Christian age, which upsets some people to hear that, but it's true. Uh, The Christian church was sort of the center of things in the Western world for so many centuries and now is fading in its significance, at least as a cultural force, while it picks up then in the southern hemisphere in many ways. So we're in a post-Christian culture, a secular culture, uh, pluralistic and tolerant, uh, tolerant are words that uh, encourage some and make others angry. <laughs> and uh, we live in a culture marked by a, an increasing pluralism and a tolerance. Or what I like to say, and there's hyphens between all these words, open to spirituality but not necessarily historic Christianity open to spirituality, but not necessarily historic and traditional Christianity. I don't necessarily mean the gospel, but I mean historic Christianity. All of these things are swirling in our culture now as it's changed so much. We, uh, uh, we, we, the, the same forms don't work. The, the, um, we, that's the, the neat thing about bless is that we seek to share Jesus with people. Um, some of the old forms, the old methods don't work. We can't always assume a basic Christian understanding. We can't start from the, so tell me about your church background, because there may not be one. We can't always assume that a person is searching for truth. They might be searching more for experience or searching for some sort of authentic experience that validates then God rather than needing our crystal clear proofs of his existence. But bless encourages us to listen first, to get to know the person, to find out where they are coming from, to spend time listening rather than speaking and defending, to build a relationship that's based on trust, and then to look for those opportunities that God asks to ask questions that probe then for spiritual experience. Have you ever had it? What you, something that you would call a spiritual experience? See what they say. A lot of people have, whether they know Christ or not. And then look for opportunities to explain your experience of knowing Christ and his working in and through your life. You see, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and the need for Jesus is unchanging through the ages. 
But a changing world and a changing culture means different approaches with a respect for others. The epistle lectionary reading for today, which we're not spending much time with, except I want to read to you 1 Peter 3, verse 15. Peter says here, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. A lot of times we stop there, but this next line is very important. But do this with gentleness and respect. Always be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have in you. And do it with gentleness and respect. The Apostle Paul was prepared. God was preparing him to give hope to the church. We're calling this series, The Church Moves Forward in Hope. And we've got hope here about an anchor for the soul. We've got a car moving down the road and it's moving hope forward. And we're talking about moving this hope forward. And Apostle Paul did that. And the church, but the church, God was preparing the early church also as they moved forward, as they were confronting some of these cultural challenges themselves. They began within their Jewish context and they could use Jewish words and assume belief in the one God. And they could share there, but as they expanded into Asia Minor and up into Europe. The message had to change. Not the truth, but the message had to change as they move forward. And we get a glimpse of that today as Paul goes to Athens. So what I want to say is this. That as the early church moved forward, they experienced great success and they faced great challenges in communicating the gospel across cultural barriers. Paul's message to the Athenians reminds us that we need not fear the current culture, but move forward in hope, open to new ways of proclaiming the unchanging truth of Jesus. New ways of proclaiming the unchanging truth of Jesus. What I want to look at first as we look at Paul's text here is, first of all, this issue of culture and the context there, and and how Paul adjusted to that. He speaks to them of this unknown God. Secondly, he speaks of timeless truth, and he says, well, I'm going to let you know who he is, as we speak of knowing God. And then finally, Paul does another version, really, here of proclaiming the gospel by speaking of the need for repentance and the power of the resurrection that verifies who Jesus is. So that's kind of the direction we're going. So culture and context. If you read a little earlier in Acts chapter 17, you find out that Paul was actually only in Athens to hang out for a while. Actually, he'd been in Thessalonica, and he'd been driven out of town. They were all upset about what he was teaching up there. And then he went to Berea. And the Bereans are like the nice guys of the Bible. I think of that when I drive through. When you drive south, you go through Berea, Kentucky, right? And it just feels nice because the Bereans were nice to Paul. But he got to Athens, and all he was doing in Athens, it says, at the end of chapter 16, was he was waiting for Timothy and Silas. He was just waiting. But Paul, being Paul, had kind of wandered around Athens a little bit, and he, was, uh, uh, he couldn't help notice and be troubled by Athens and what a different world it was spiritually. It was a different world. Athens was a center of intellectual and philosophical pursuit. It was a little bit past its glory at the time of Paul, and yet it still, and it was part of the Roman Empire then, but it still was a center of intellectual and philosophical learning. Rome was a center of political power, but Athens continued to be the center of learning and philosophical pursuit. It was a city that had been built to honor Greek gods. It was full of idols. It was full of opinions. It was full of ideas. It was full of curiosity about opinions and ideas and idols and gods. 
There's no mention in this text of a Jewish-based community. That's usually where Paul started. Even in the pagan lands or the, the, the non-Christian lands of up, up north of like Philippi, he still went and found the Jews who were worshiping. It was his starting place. But in Athens, there's no mention of a Jewish enclave at all. And so as Paul came into Athens, it called this different world called then for a different approach. A different approach. With Jews, he could reason from the Old Testament scriptures and say, see, here's what the prophets told you. It's like what we hear from Peter at Pentecost explaining what had happened. Or last week we talked about Stephen. Stephen reasoned with the people that were accusing him, all using the Old Testament. But Paul doesn't do that in Athens. Here it's not known. It was a different world. It was a different culture. And it required what we call today contextualization. Contextualization. A common theme these days uh, in a lot of areas of, of, of global business, but it's a common theme in global mission work as well and evangelism. Ed Stetzer serves as the director, executive director of the Billy Graham Center for Evangelism at Wheaton College. He also is the chair of the Evangelism and Leadership Program in Wheaton's Graduate School. Ed is a, not a covenanter, but a friend of the covenant. A lot of our people have studied with him, and he is part of the influence that has resulted in the BLESS initiative. In a Christianity Today article on contextualizing the gospel, he first defines culture. He says, we use the term culture to refer to the common ideas, feelings, and values that guide community and personal behavior, that organize and regulate what the group thinks, feels, and does about God, the world, and humanity. He says, unfortunately, not all evangelicals understand culture in this manner. Some evangelicals mistakenly believe that Scripture's warnings about the world, or the cosmos in Greek, are warnings against culture itself. However, this is not the case. All people are fashioned in the image of God and are recipients of common grace. This means that we should expect to find some positive features present in every culture, even non-Christian cultures. We should expect to find some positive features present in every culture, even non-Christian cultures. At the same time, every person has sinned, and we should expect to find some negative features present in every culture. Instead of shunning culture completely, we should instead engage culture with care and discernment. In other words, what Stetzer's trying to say here is that cultures are neither good nor bad. They just are, and there are some elements of good there. We need to know what's going on there so that we can know what we're dealing with and how we can adapt and how we speak. As we share the gospel, we try to fit the context. That's contextualization. Stetzer goes on and says, The process of contextualization takes these facts about culture into account. It involves, quote, presenting the unchanging truths of the gospel within the unique and changing context of culture and worldviews. Okay, that's the end of my little lesson on contextualization. But we're going to go back to Paul in Athens and see that's exactly what he was doing. As we look at Paul here in Athens, he makes a connection to this different culture. He observes them and he learns something and he makes a connection. He initiates what we call really a spiritual conversation. And Paul begins to build a bridge. He says in verses 22 and 23, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. I see that you are very religious. And the Greek word, it was intended as a compliment to them of their spirituality, apparently, in the original. And so Paul is doing this respectively. He compliments them. I see that you are spiritual people. You're religious people. 
And he does not take time right then to say, boy, are you off base. You people must be nuts. He didn't say that. He's thinking it maybe. <laughs> in fact, inside, it says earlier in Acts 17, he saw the idols and he was greatly distressed. So Paul was greatly distressed on the inside, but he's seeking to build this bridge. He's calm, he's respectful, and says, I see that you're very religious. Stetzer refers to this incident and says, the fact that Paul mentioned an aspect of the Athenians' idolatrous worship was not a tacit approval of their entire religious system. See, just by complimenting doesn't mean like, oh, you're fine, you're probably going to heaven. He said, I see that you're religious people. It was not a tacit approval. He was merely utilizing a religious element of their setting, an altar to an unknown God, to connect with his hearers and build a bridge to the truth. Similarly, we may use elements of another's culture worldview, culture's worldview to bridge the gospel. This need not be construed as an embracing of that worldview. So when you listen to somebody and they share their opinions about spirituality that you happen to know maybe aren't biblically based, you don't go, it may not be the time right then to point out that they're wrong, but to say, well, that's an interesting perspective. So what you understand about God is this. So Paul is listening. It should be noted that Paul not only used their system to connect, but he also contrasted elements with the truth. He did go on to do that. Later in the passage, as Paul explains that the true God can be known, he quotes two of their poets, actually. He quotes, quotes two of their poets that really connect to the truth. One of their poets had said, for in, in, in him we live and move and have our being. Well, that's true about God. So Paul said, hey, one of your poets said that. He, he actually stumbled onto some of the truth, is kind of what Paul is saying here. And then another one of their poets had said in his work, we are his offspring. And so Paul connected that to God as well. Again, not a tacit approval or a wholesale acceptance of all that they had taught. But there's some truth in it. I remember learning in college that all truth is God's truth. If we stumble on the truth somewhere else in the world or in another culture, if it's true truth, it's God's truth, right? Because God is the author of all truth. So Paul builds this bridge, but then he connects across this bridge and he brings them to this timeless truth of knowing God. When I first began seminary uh, in Denver, we were at a friend's house for dinner one night and our friend said, let's come out on the deck. We went on the deck and he said, we need to take time out for a little GR. Do you know what GR is? Any theologians? General revelation. Remember that? Kim Dowd. So we looked, that actually is the skyline of Denver. I didn't take this picture that day. This is, I found it online. But anyway, um, and this is a reference to general revelation. God has made himself known. He is not far from any of us. If we seek for him, we will find him. The heavens declare the glory of God. All of that general revelation that God has displayed in the world for people to see and to seek him. Special revelation refers to scriptural truth and the historic truth that we know. And we take both of them together. And so Paul, in a sense here, is appealing to the, the, the general revelation of, of a God who can be found if we look for him. But he makes the link here. and He says... He says, I see this altar to an unknown God. You obviously are aware of general revelation that there's God or gods out there. But this, you are ignorant of who he is. And he's not telling their, ignorant is a neutral word here. You don't know. You don't know the thing you worship, but that's what I'm going to tell you about now. Here's here's what I'm going to proclaim to you. This God that you're seeking is a maker, not made. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands, says Paul. He doesn't live in temples. He doesn't reside in inanimate 
idols. He is a real God. He's a God who gives life to things, and he uh, is in our midst. This God that I make known to you is the sustainer and the, the guider of truth. Paul says he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. He's a sustainer, that he, he is the source of life to us. In him we live and move and have our being, as one of your poets said. And let me tell you, he is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. He is the one who actually sets the boundaries for nations. He's the one that determines when they rise and fall. He is the appointer of times through history, says Paul. He is a real God who is engaged in the lives of his people. He's a living God, caring and guiding, involved in the lives of the people that he created and loves. And then finally, he is also a God who is available and findable. Paul says, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. The implication of the original words is sometimes uh, translated that they might find him groping in the darkness, trying to find him in the darkness. There is a longing, there is an awareness in people of all cultures of something bigger, something divine. We learn in anthropological work that that, that there is something in in nearly every culture through history that seeks and honors something beyond us, something divine. I noticed that there's a new movie out in the Alien franchise. The first Alien was 1979. That was a long time ago. But this one caught my eye because it's called Alien Covenant. And I thought, how cool they made an alien about us. Isn't that great? And so I expect one of the showings will be at North Park University or at Covenant Headquarters. Um, isn't that great? No, seriously. Um, but I, I, I stumbled across a, re- across a review of it this last week. I, I probably won't go see it, and I didn't see the original one, but I, I like to read reviews and hear what's going on out there. Ridley Scott is a famous uh, movie maker, and uh, he's noted for his spirituality or lack of. And it shows through. He's very much an anti-church, anti-religion guy. But there are some clear spiritual elements apparently woven through this. Maybe he looked into the evangelical covenant. I don't know. But anyway, um, but he was quoted as saying something. He, he, he bashes a lot about religion, but he also says, but there is something. There is something higher. So even a brash movie maker that tries to make a social point but really just makes several million dollars. <laughs> Knows there's something. It's an unknown God. It's an unknown force. It's a higher power. It's a, it's a something that explains all of this life. And Paul says, I'm going to tell you who he is. This is what I'm proclaiming to you. And he makes the connection. He makes the religious connection. He makes a philosophical connection. And now it's time for Jesus. And his approach to this timeless God is by way of speaking of repentance and resurrection. This is where Paul proclaims the gospel. Really what he says is, God's been at work down through the ages. He's made himself known as you look for him. and He's been very patient. But guess what, he says, time's up. He says that. Time's up. It's time to turn. He says, in the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. 
For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Human history goes on and on and on. But the biblical view of human history says there is a point at which Christ came and there's a point at which Christ will change things and consummate the perfect kingdom. And it's a time of decision and a time of reckoning. It's a time of judgment. And so Paul brings them to that place and says, he's been patient with you, he's been available to you, and now he calls you to himself. Time's up, it's time to... Turn. Repentance means a change. It means a, a turning from loyalties to one to, to loyalties to another. Loyalties to Jesus Christ. God has appointed this man. I've used the term here, the scandal of the resurrection, which might be kind of a frightening uh, combination of words for those of us who hold to the truth, but I call it a scandal because it f- totally freaked out the Athenians when they heard it. They're all, go, all these intellectuals are going, hmm, hmm, oh, he quoted our poet. That's kind of good. This guy's kind of making sense. And he talks about a human being, a flesh and blood human being raised from the dead. And they went, he's nuts. That's scandalous. And many fled away. Not everybody, but many fled away. A bodily resurrection was a creepy thing for these intellectuals who felt like life be, happened outside the body. But Jesus physically rose from the dead. And we will too. That's the scandal of the resurrection. Bodies will still be bodies. We get new ones. That's the good news, right? And Paul here points to this uniqueness of Christ. And he says, not only is this a uniqueness, but this is what verifies who he is. He is the first one, the only one who has ever literally died and literally risen from the dead. God points and says, this is how we know that he is the unique one and only God. Because he rose from the dead. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. This is Paul's presentation of the gospel. And actually this part of Acts 17 has been noted or even criticized or been a concern to some theologians that Paul does not mention the cross here. How can you present the gospel without the cross? But Paul is presenting the gospel. He's pointing to the time of judgment. He's pointing to the truth of who he is. And he couldn't rise from the dead unless he died, which was on a cross. <laughs> it's all in there. And Paul probably had more talks with the people who asked for more information. The point is that he built this bridge to a different world, a different culture. He respected them, and he respected them and loved them so much so that he needed to give them this truth and this call. And I don't think his respectfulness turned into an angry, fiery... Sometimes we hear that word repent, and it's like a... It's like, guess what? You have the opportunity to know this one. All you need to do is turn to him, and it's time. That's different from, hey, sinner... (laughs) Yes, they were sinners, aren't we all? But he invited them to turn and pointed to the resurrection as the the verification of the truth of the one true God. There's different ways to present the gospel. It's one gospel. We don't have to use bless. We don't have to use four spiritual laws or 29 spiritual laws. There are different ways to present the one true gospel. And that's the point about the shifting cultures business. We have shifting cultures, but we have a solid hope, like an anchor for the soul. It's a solid hope, but the culture shift, and so we need to be able to read that. We need to listen to each other. We need to talk about it together 
So they're not just out there on their own when these conversations happen and say, how would you answer this? What would you do? Cultures are constantly shifting. We find even here in the life of church culture that it's shifting so much. We've had a lot of conversations about this lately. Church is just different than it used to be. We have different ways of connecting. We have different ways of of serving. We have different ways of attending. We are impacted by the culture around us that pulls us in a hundred different directions. We've been noting lately the differences in, in the youth culture. And some of it is just a sign of the times and some of it is the incredible impact of technology and how it has informed us and helped us and distracted us and divided us and numbed us. Our culture is shifting and changing and it's impacting each of us and our commitments here, how we feel about it, and it's affecting our youth and how we minister to them. But as I said in my beginning, let's not be afraid of the culture. Let's be creative in how we learn about it, how we live with it, and how we cling to even more firmly the truth of the gospel. Peter said, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. And do this with gentleness and respect. To always be prepared is the part, it's not just a, here's a 90-second version of presenting the gospel. It's our dialogue. It's our living. It's our understanding our culture. It's our digging into some of this blessed stuff and going, what does it really mean to ask somebody? Well, how do we do spiritual conversations? Pastor Diana and I are committed to this in the years ahead of helping create a culture of evangelism where it will be more more normal where we come here to share the spiritual conversations we've had, the cultural bridges we've been able to build, and the amazing things God continues to do even in this weird world that we live in. The world's always been weird (laughs) and opposed to the gospel. But we have this hope secure. Just a reminder on the the bless letters. Because it wasn't just something we did in Lent to forget, okay? It'll be back. The B is begin with prayer. Praying for those in your circle of influence, your friends, relatives, acquaintances, neighbors, co-workers. Pray and ask God to be at work in their life and then when you listen to them, when you talk to them, listen for where God is already working. Where are the places where the bridges might be built? Spend some time together, eat together, share a meal together. I had the privilege of sitting around a table last night in a totally non-churchy context. I was a, a guide for the Frank Lloyd Wright thing in Oak Park all day yesterday. I went to the after party with my son Grady and several of his acquaintances, people I worked with, a totally different world. But what a privilege to listen to their world and even to note, even there, the kind of little spiritual connections that popped up. I wish I'd had longer, but I had to go home because I had to come to work this morning. Eat together. Serve with love. Do good things for people. It's okay. Do good things. Build a bridge by serving and love. And then when the time is right, when you sense a spiritual need or sensitivity, share your story. Let's think together. A lot of you have blessed lists. If you don't, I encourage you today to write down the names of those that you will be praying for and seeking to build bridges to. I just wanted you to think, what, what are some of the things that you're learning as you watch and as you listen about them and about the world that we live in? And to be asking God, how and where can we build bridges to their world as we share the unchanging, life-changing truths of the gospel? Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, I, I confess, and I confess on behalf of, I think, some others in the room, that we get overwhelmed with the culture around us sometimes. And so overwhelmed that we even secretly wonder in our hearts, can the gospel make a difference? Lord, but we know it can because it's made a difference in us and made a difference in the sisters and brothers in Christ that we know and that we walk this journey with. Lord, give us a heart for those around us that don't know you. Give us ears to listen. Give us patience to wait. And then give us the words to speak, Lord Jesus, as we give a reason for the hope that we have in you. We ask this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.